You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we ask now that you would speak to us of your gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might live into this life that you have given to us by grace and by your mercy. We pray this in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus announced to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He didn't say you ought to be, or you should be, or it would be nice if you were. He didn't say that you were the honey of the world. He says that you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He's just given the Beatitudes, beginning with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we read the promises that come with these benedictions, he's given just about everything to these disciples. He's given them his mercy. He's given them his kingdom. He's given them his righteousness. These Beatitudes are grace-based. They're not a description of what we do in order to become acceptable in God's eyes. This is what we do because we have been accepted by God's grace. And so we declare our dependence, absolute dependence, on the living God. We declare that we have no stature before him apart from his mercy and his grace. But because of that grace and mercy, because we're blessed in this way, because we do hunger and thirst after righteousness, because what God has built into our lives now, because we do count it a privilege to suffer for his name's sake, because of that, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The Sermon on the Mount envisions a whole new way of the human person relating to the world. And that is something that the church is concerned in its testimony and in its witness to proclaim and to practice. Assault's main purpose is not a flavor enhancer. In the first century, salt was a very necessary preservative. And light may mean more in the first century than it does here in the 21st century where we've become quite accustomed to controlling light. There they lived with natural light and they lived very much within those daylight hours except for their oil candle burning lamps. Salt is a preservative. Light is a necessary illumination in the darkness. Jesus means for this salt and light to be very public. It isn't a private faith. Yes, it's a personal faith, but it's not meant to be a solitary religion. John Wesley wrote that, I shall endeavor to show that Christianity is essentially a social religion. 
and that to turn it into a solitary religion is indeed to destroy it. Everything in our culture, though, would be inclined to emphasize that your faith is private, it's subjective, it's personal, it's, a, it's your opinion, it's what you claim is true. So kind of keep it to yourself. I learned that lesson in 10th grade. We were supposed to give a speech in speech class, and we were supposed to give it on what was most important to us. The speech teacher insisted on us saying what we really were vested in. Most of our classes were in about 30, but once a week, all the English sections met in one auditorium. And sure enough, it was my bad luck that the day I was supposed to give the speech, it fell on the auditorium day. 300 of my peers. And I was speaking on what is the most important thing in life to me. And what would you think a sincere believer raised in a really godly home would speak on? And I spoke on Christ. I still remember aspects of that. I don't remember what I said. But I do remember that by my peers, it was well-received. And we were graded, 50% of our grade was five of our fellow students. And the other 50% was the speech teacher. I got five A's from my peers, style, delivery, content, and got a bright red D by my speech teacher. She was angry. I had violated her understanding that one was not supposed to speak about religious matters. This was a public school. You had no right to be speaking about God. It was interesting when these grades were passed back, the English teacher passed back that the peers and then the speech teacher and he turned, leaned over to me and humbled, uh, sort of mumbled in a whisper. He said, Doug, I didn't count the D. But that was my introduction to keeping faith private. There is an inherent public quality to who we have been called to be. In the first century, the second century, uh, there was a letter written to Diogenes defending Christianity. We really don't know who wrote it, and we don't know who Diogenes was, but this letter has survived in the history of the church, and it's really a beautiful letter. It's a beautiful apology. There's 12 chapters to it. I'm reading from just a little portion of it. Christians are distinguished from other people neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe, following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native land, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. 
They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. The letter goes on to say, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Ray Binkley was a Shell Oil executive, a friend of mine in Toronto, Canada. We both went to the same church. And Ray confessed that for years he attended that church and found Sunday morning filled with platitudes, nice religious rhetoric. It never impacted whatsoever what he did at Shell. And then he went through a personal crisis a car accident, almost died. It led him to reconsider his life. He said that he followed Jesus. Well, what did it mean to follow Jesus? And he began a re-examination of his life. And I'll say, it changed everything about him. He used to brag about writing the largest tech contracts for the corporation and if people were foolish enough to accept the contract, he was the beneficiary. He was really interested in the pecking order at the corporation and the benefits that his success accrued. But all of that changed. People that he ignored and shunned because they weren't important enough suddenly became people that he recognized as image bearers of God who deserved his recognition and deserved his respect. But it wasn't only Ray whose life was affected. His daughter's life was greatly affected. I would say the whole family, but Laura became one of my students at the seminary. She was a tremendous student, a really faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And after she graduated, she felt led of the Lord to go to Moscow and to serve in an orphanage. She befriended Russians, and one of those Russians that she befriended set her up for an attack in her apartment, and she was stabbed to death. The saga of the Binkley family is really a testimony, a powerful testimony to God's grace and mercy and their salt and light impact. Some years ago, I don't think it's being, uh, I don't think it's happening now, but a group of Christians at Harvard decided that they felt that they needed to take their faith more seriously, and they set up the Harvard Evangelical Laity Involvement Exercises. They had 10 seminars covering vocation, lordship, evangelism, contemplative disciplines, basic theology, social justice, and at the end of those 10 seminars, they wrote answers to these questions. How has your choice of a career 
in a particular vocation been governed by the values of Jesus' kingdom? What are your overall objectives as a missionary to your chosen vocational discipline? What are the specific areas in which your vocational discipline is hostile to the gospel, friendly to the gospel? A number of questions. The last one, how will you balance the pressures on your time, particularly with regard to family and other relational responsibilities? Jesus intended for us to be salt and light, to take this great gospel and apply it to our lives. He describes a heart righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees were held up as the religious models, but a righteousness that came not externally imposed upon someone, but by the grace of God welling up internally. And then he lays it out, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. That's what the world was supposed to see. And he hasn't talked yet about praying and giving and fasting. I have a pastor friend who, during the anthem, will look out over the congregation And he'll feel the tremendous burden of trying to communicate the gospel, kind of knowing the individual lives, knowing the stresses and strains that they face. And he feels overwhelmed by that. And that's a worthy concern. But I'll tell you, I look at it differently than that. So let's say there's an 80-year-old widow who's just buried her husband this past week. And in the pew next to her, there is a newly uh, honeymooned couple that's just gotten back. And a little further down, you see in a row, the junior hire with orange hair by the body language does not want to be there. And you feel the tension in the row. I look at the church as a kind of household of faith, and I'm praying that that newly honeymooned couple will shoot over to the 80-year-old widow and ask her how she's doing. They've heard and they've been praying for her. And I'm praying that that 80-year-old widow, who I know can get through to some orange-haired junior hires better than I can, walks up and just shows some interest in that boy. I see us operating as a salt and light household of faith community in which we have impact on each other's lives for the sake of the gospel. But then not just here in the nave, not just here in the four walls of the advent. We find here, and to a Presbyterian it's always a learning process, of this tight scripted liturgy where every word counts and every word has a history. And there is a sense of the depth of tradition in that liturgy. Tightly scripted for an hour, but you do realize that when we walk out of here, we need a liturgy too. 
We're not free from the liturgy when we walk out of here. We need the liturgy of the Word of God speaking into our lives, shaping our response to life in every way. So we're not liturgy free. There's a liturgy of life that the Lord has given to us. So there's this heart righteousness, there's this social ethic, there's this impact. But let me put one more thing in before I close that I think brings us to the table. In John 13 through 17, Jesus speaks with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And he reenacts, in a way, a parable of the atonement by stripping down, wrapping himself with a towel, and washing the disciples' feet. John purposely gives very deep, uh, deep truth indicators as he begins to describe this foot washing. This is not just a foot washing. This is pointing to the atonement, where it's not just water washing the feet, but it is the blood of Christ that's washing away our sins. And that this isn't just a moment. This is a kairos moment, God's grace-filled moment. And I would encourage us all, myself included, that we belong to the order of the towel and the basin. And that while the end point of this, taking up a cross and following Jesus, is all based on the fact that Christ has sacrificed for us. He is the sacerdotal priest. He is the mediator between God and man. But there's a continuum here that begins with foot washing and ends at the cross. And we're on that continuum. We are salt and light Christians engaged in that kind of very public ministry. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.